All right, let's get into the um, our union story for today. So this is from, let me bring it up. Doug Jaffray, my experience, union activism in a yellow union. So first of all, what's a yellow union? Um, red is the color of socialism and communism and Marxism. Yellow is often used, at, well, so you have white is the color of counter-revolution. Um, yellow is kind of, uh, not the color of counter-revolution, but more of capitalism. And in this case, uh, it means a yellow union is, uh, well, so uh, anarcho-capitalists, they have the black and yellow flag. Um, anarchy, but with bosses. Okay, makes a lot of sense. Anyway, a yellow union is not a red union. It's not a militant, anti-capitalist union. It's basically a company union that organizes the workers, but does not engage in fierce struggle, and in some cases uh, really exists more for the benefit of the employer than anything else. So um, anyway, that's a little bit of background on a yellow union. You can read more about that concept um, various places online. But so this is, uh, this is a story. This is one of uh, our, our listeners here uh, writing about, and I think that along the way, if you've listened to past live streams, they have shared ongoing uh, updates from their union experience. This is sort of the overall write-up. So let's dig into it. Union organizing is an important part of the class struggle in terms of taking the fight to the shop floor. It's a fight that many people, socialists included, do not know where to start. My hope in writing this is that it can be learned from and utilized in building and organizing among unions, especially yellow unions. Let me start by defining what a yellow union is and how it makes it hard for a union to be effective. A yellow union is a union that is not working in the interest of the worker, but is directly controlled or influenced by the employer. Organizing within a yellow union can be difficult because not only are you up against the employer, but you also have to deal with an antagonistic relationship with the union leadership. This can make taking action very difficult as the leadership will fight you on anything that will make a substantial change in working conditions. So commenting, this, it's a false form of organization which basically preempts the workers organizing independently. And independent organizing, whether it's on the shop floor in a union or whether it's in a political party within the political system, independent organizing in a forum that is not controlled by the 1%, by the employer in the case of you know, a smaller workplace, uh, but by the capitalist interests at whatever level, the big bourgeoisie or petty bourgeoisie, um, if you're not organized independently of them, it's going to be very hard to you know, plan, strategize, and launch any kind of action that will really, uh, they'll see you coming, you know, and they'll be meddling with your efforts the entire time. That's why we're always telling people you can't organize within the Democratic Party. We're trying to organize against the Democratic Party. You can't organize against something from within it and similar with the uh, yellow union here, it's um, what are you going to be in a yellow union and a red union as well? You know, no. So the whole purpose of it is to funnel workers into something where they feel organized but aren't actually capable of fighting from that position. Continuing, I began my employment as a general worker at a direct mail printing company in 2017, and I learned very quickly how dysfunctional the union that was representing us was, as they took four months to accept my application to join. Being a new employee in uh, an environment I've never worked in before, industrial printing, I had to learn everything from scratch, especially if I wanted to get actively involved with the union. I had to learn what the working conditions were, how the shop operated, how management operated, what the union was like, and how they dealt with problems. Any person trying to do any kind of organizing or action, union or not, should be asking questions and listening more than they talk. So yeah, I would echo that completely. We have a number of union organizing manuals up on the channel, and that holds true whether you're in a workplace that already has a union, which is oftentimes not very militant and not very good, doesn't fight very hard or effectively for the workers, uh, or whether you're in a workplace that has no union at all, it takes this kind of sizing up um, surveillance of, you know, the employer, the managers, how does everything work? If you're interested in that, uh, look up IWW Organizing Manual on the channel. There's a bunch of different things. We also have a playlist, uh, uh, labor organizing 
for socialists. So, you know, or just labor organizing with there's a variety of things on the channel. There's also a pamphlet, How to Fire Your Boss. So we have a variety of resources. All right, continuing. Through the process of asking questions and investigation, I discovered that the pension was drying up. The union had bargained away our breaks for 30 minutes of overtime, that the bosses were being allowed to openly harass workers and threaten them if they didn't choose to work more overtime, if you didn't work 12 hours a day and work at least two weekends a month, and numerous safety violations, including unlabeled and open chemical containers, missing guards, and not being in compliance with safety protocols related to washing blanket cylinders while they're spinning, blanket cylinders are the rubber-lined cylinders that transfer ink into the paper, among various other safety hazards we were expected to deal with in the shop. So here's a union that's just letting the workers' rights get violated all over the place. And it's shit like this that gives unions a bad name, and why many people have falsely concluded, or wrongly concluded, that you know, no union is better than a union. And there are some cases where no union is better than a really bad union because it can be easier to start a new good union uh, in an environment where there is no, you know, where there isn't a bad union already kind of confusing people about what a union is and the need for a union and, and so on. But um, yeah, the reality is uh, most times even a bad union is better than no union. It depends though. And uh, anyway, you can see how complicated this is. It's not as just simple as, well, I had a bad experience with a union once, therefore unions are bad. It's not that simple. Let's get into more of the details. My experience with organizing there really began when I met an anarcho-syndicalist coworker of mine who was heavily involved with the IWW. So that's the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the Wobblies. They were founded in 1905 by pretty serious radicals, including Eugene Debs. Um, they later fell into kind of more of an anarchist than a Marxist type of ideology, which is very unfortunate. But uh, they did, rather than craft unionism or trade unionism, they did industrial unionism, which organizes workers by the industry that they're in, not the type of job that they do much more effective and broad-reaching form of organizing that can allow for much more crippling strikes. We have a couple of Eugene Debs audiobooks up on the channel that can explain that. The IWW still exists today, but it's not a mass movement like it was back in the 19-teens, for example. All right. When he found out that I was a Marxist, we began talking organizing. At this point, I had very little experience with union organizing and direct action. So having someone introduce me to it by getting me involved in it was a real learning experience with both errors and successes that can equally be learned from. Very true. Our first course of action was to address the abhorrent safety conditions that led to a high rate of injury in the workplace. Also to create a newsletter for the purpose of agitation and build ties with their Vietnamese and Hispanic coworkers who had oftentimes had their concerns be largely ignored and pushed to the side and looked down upon by management and higher positions on the production side. Our shop has five tiers of production workers, general workers on the bottom, lead packers in charge of paperwork and changing plates and blankets, as well as doing the job of a general worker, feeders who do register and load the paper into the press, second pressmen who do color and set up the inline that folds and trims the paper, and the first pressman who runs the lines, line, uh, sorry, runs the press, lines up the ribbons, and reports directly to the bosses. So let me just add, this kind of sizing up of the division of labor, who does what job, are particular um, workers of particular ethnicities hired for different sections? Is there racism um, in, or you know, some sort of ethnic uh, prejudice playing into uh, how the different workers are treated? Are there language barriers? Like understanding all of that is crucial for if you're organizing in a workplace. The whole idea, I think this is pretty much the bottom line. The whole idea of a labor union is you're trying to shift the balance of power in the workplace from the employers and their agents, the managers, and to a lesser extent, the supervisors, um, the bosses and the managers who can hire and fire specifically, that's really all the power in the end, and who keep the profits, and really direct production and make the purchases and, and all those kinds of major decisions. Uh, they have all the power to start. You're trying to shift the power 
away from them toward the workers. Well, that means getting very, very organized and literally knowing the system better than the bosses do. All right. We started flyering the newsletters anywhere they would be seen, on bulletin boards, in the bathrooms, on the presses, and on tables. The supervisors didn't like this and started taking down our flyers and gave my coworker, who was caught doing it, a write-up. The union didn't defend him and took the side of the employer. This was the first sign of yellow unionism, as nothing said, uh, as nothing said in these flyers was incorrect. So, in other words, it wasn't libel. It was truthful. And other employees had used these bulletin boards for sports gambling, fundraisers for their children, or even just posting up humorous pictures. In other words, these weren't off-limits to the workers, just off-limits when they were trying to agitate. The minute they were used as an agitation tool to make the workplace a better and safer environment, it became a problem. The next action we took was to address the lack of guards on the machinery and anything that could be addressed in 15 minutes or less by shutting down any press we were on together with our other co-workers who would back us up. This angered the first and second pressmen because their production numbers are all that matter to them, and if they're high, then they get special treatment from the bosses. It was no concern to them whether the guards were in place or not, as they weren't the ones uh, webbing up the paper through the press and putting themselves in direct danger. So this is one of the ways that the bosses can pit the workers against each other, and with a low degree of class consciousness and solidarity, it's effective as it was in this case. While they were angry with us, our actions were praised by those who did have to do those kinds of things, the general workers, lead packers, and feeders. Ultimately, management had found out who was shutting the presses down, and that it had been largely led by my syndicalist co-worker. They attempted to cut it off at the head by firing him, and, ending, and ended up having to settle in court for a wrongful termination lawsuit that awarded him $25,000, forced the company to actually put the guards in the machines, among other safety equipment like automatic blanket washers that would put them in compliance with safety regulations, but he wasn't allowed to come back. So, side note here again, this is what happens a lot in labor cases. Um, if you're having trouble building actual shop, uh, power on the shop floor, you're having trouble actually getting the workers to stick together and organize, the few that do will often be illegally fired because you have the right to engage in what's called protected concerted activity. We've discussed this on the channel in past um, labor organizing videos. You can look up the definition of this on the NLRB website if you're in the U.S., National Labor Relations Board, and they'll give you examples of what protected concerted activity is. It's basically anything that is not just for you, but you and at least one other worker, co-worker of yours, that you're trying to improve safety conditions, whatever. As long as you are uh, doing it collectively, not just for yourself, uh, it tends to be protected. And that's the case here, and they wound up having to pay the guy $25,000 and do it anyway. That often happens. Um, but what happens is, they will pay that fine of back wages for the wrongful firing and all that stuff. It's still, uh, what they're mainly interested in is keeping power away from the workers. Like I said, the primary focus of a labor union is to shift the balance of power away from the employers and toward the workers as much as possible. If you shift it completely to the workers, you can actually take it over, maybe turn it you know, into a co-op or whatever, although that's not a requirement that you would actually like take on that responsibility. But, um, you know, you would have some kind of a takeover of the workplace and, um, you know, that would be the extreme. But you, if you can at least shift the power in the middle, then they have to actually listen to you. They can't just ignore you anymore. And they hate that. So what you see time after time is workers unionizing and then not even making wage demands. Like they're making demands that would really cost the employer very little money, but it would cost them some power. It would cost them some control over production. It would cost them some control over conditions. And they don't want to give up that power, so they're willing to spend money on anti-union lawyers. You know, union-busting law firms have are plentiful in the U.S., and they specialize in how to, quote, legally, or at least, you know, not completely legally, but to sort of uh, skirt the line of what's legal in terms of breaking up a union. And uh, that, that lawyer is basically there to walk the employer through the process. So they'd rather, or even if the workers are making a wage demand, what you'll see 
is the employer spending more money on the anti-union lawyer than they would have had to pay in wages just because they want to hang on to the power and reserve that ability to ignore their workers. It's just, this is what you see over and over and over again. All right. Uh, ultimately, okay, that was that. This experience ultimately uncovered many contradictions within the union and among the laborers themselves. So contradiction is a word that we use a lot in Marxism and dialectics. It's a difference which, so here um, you've got the workers are not uniting. There's a contradiction there. There's a split among the workers who have seemingly different interests, or at least they believe they do. So there's a contradiction that came out when some of the workers started doing this direct action of shutting the presses down. Some of the other workers were like, hey, you're hurting our interests because they were putting the handouts that they were getting from the boss above sticking together with the other workers for ultimately more long-term power. During the process of firing him, the union ultimately refused to defend him, minus one shop steward, and they again took the side of the company. This was another sign that the union did not represent the interests of the workers in making the workplace a better and safer environment, but instead was there to make the workers feel, feel like they had a voice when they didn't. The only thing we ultimately had was the contract, and if the shop stewards weren't willing to fight to enforce that contract, then we, in reality, wouldn't even have that. Another contradiction I found was between the first and second pressmen, who would receive special, special treatment if they had high numbers and helped supervisors to enforce a workplace culture of overwork and hostility, and the bottom three positions who were involved in the majority of the production process. So in other words, the first and second pressmen got co-opted into at least some amount of alignment with the interests of the bosses with these petty concessions that they were given, these small rewards that they were given, the bosses got them to turn against the other workers. And that's really, can be a death knell for organizing efforts. So this is why we need to uh, encourage class consciousness and solidarity on a very general level throughout society and uphold that as a value and promote that as a value. Because in a specific workplace situation, it can make the difference between one of these efforts working or not. Okay. Um, it was in the first and second pressmen's immediate interest to side with the bosses for their special treatment. Ultimately, I was able to agitate on these contradictions with my co-workers in the bottom three positions, pointing out how the union was failing to represent them and the pressmen were actively working against them, despite being union members themselves. I was also able to point out that the actions that my co-workers and I had taken had positive results in terms of fixing some of the safety hazards around the shop. I also had to realize that while we might have been successful to a degree, the fact that my coworker had been fired resulted in other coworkers being scared out of taking action and becoming alienated from the struggle. One error in this was acting too big too soon, and in order to have had better results, we would have needed a larger group of people committed to taking action in the workplace. So let me add, and you're also down a lead organizer and generator of ideas and strategy, and probably that person had some experience as well. So you lost that. So I think that is a good lesson to learn. Don't act too big too soon. I know that the, the temptation can be strong to try to flex your muscle, but if you, you know, try to flex too much muscle on too big of a weight that you can't support, you can just wind up spraining something. And that uh, is what happened here. Unfortunately, so now you're down an organizer and the rest of the workers are kind of scared. Whereas if there had been a more um, gradual procession towards that point, then um, people, you know, you might have been able to have that discussion ahead of time of like, we're going to take this direct action. There could be consequences. Let's talk about that now so that we're not hit with it by surprise. Then everybody gets shocked into silence on the other side of it. So, you know, I don't know exactly what went into that decision. It might have seemed like the best decision at the time, and it might have just been, um, you know, in hindsight made sense, but with the information you had ahead of time, it might have seemed to have made sense at the time. I don't know if that will, you know, if I would have judged that foolish um, at that point or not. You know, sometimes you can act with as much wisdom and information as is at your disposal, and things still don't turn out the way that you would like. Obviously, the odds are better of turning out the way that you would like, but, you know, surprises happen as well. 
um, you know, science is about kind of finding the most likely thing to happen, but it doesn't always happen exactly as you expect because of some factor maybe that you failed to foresee. But anyway, continuing. I took this new information back to the shop floor, speaking with people, listening to what complaints they had, and gauging who was willing to act and who was a company rat. Very important to size up. You got to make a social map of all of the workers, who talks to who, who rides home with who, who uh, gets lunch together, who, uh, you know, glares when the boss starts yelling at you, who, um, you know, seems to take the boss's side. You got to have all that mapped out. That's, that's very important. Um, I had to take a step back and observe, plan, and build. When I found out who was reliable and willing to listen, I began talking to them about Marxism, building workers' power, and how we can achieve our goals. To those who are willing to build workers, oh, sorry, to do some reading, I passed out basic Marxist literature such as Engels, Principles of Communism, and copies of the Manifesto of the Communist Party. We used the cover of the Loud Machinery to discuss the literature I had passed out, which was effective because it drowned out our voices for anyone outside of a few feet radius. So that's exactly the kind of sizing up of your workplace you need to do. You need to find, you know, what hallways, what corners have surveillance cameras, don't have a conversation there. You know, where do voices carry? Where do they not carry? Um, you know, if they see people like workers convening in little huddles of three or four people consistently, they're going to get suspicious. That's literally manager's job. Manager's job is to help the bosses keep power and make profit. And so they're on the lookout for shit like this. So that, that was a very wise idea, talking where they can't hear what you're saying and you might just be talking about, you know, last night's ball game or something. From this, I was able to form a skeleton crew of a coalition of my coworkers with the most class conscious among them. So we would call this an organizing committee. This is before you go public, you find those workers, and it might just be, you know, half a dozen people, might, maybe even three or four, who are like solidly committed to it and who you trust. That would be your organizing committee. That's the middle of it. You start to expand out from there. All right. Um, we began our organizing efforts again, agitating on the upcoming contract negotiation. We had once again begun the task of take, talking amongst, amongst our coworkers to discover how, uh, sorry, I got lost there for a second. Let me read that again. Got completely lost. All right. With the skeleton crew, we began our organizing efforts again, agitating on the upcoming contract negotiation. We had once again begun the task of talking amongst our coworkers to discover what their concerns were. Because remember, everybody's got concerns and complaints about where they work. Agitation is the process of drawing them out. And it doesn't take a lot. Just ask people, how do you feel about such and such? And then listen. Yeah. Um, just listening to people in a way that they feel actually heard can win a, an enormous amount of trust. Anyway what their concerns were, and what they wanted was higher pay and to protect the health care plan. Before this, I had never been a part of any kind of contract discussion, as is typical for many people beginning something like this. So rather than running for the committee, I sat back and observed the interaction between the committee and management. In the meantime, after work was done, we got our coworkers together to vent, unwind with a few drinks, and discuss how the contract negotiations were going, to which I was able to inject theoretical knowledge where it applied. This process of meeting after work to just discuss work, vent, and hang out had made a lot of the workers who were hostile to me for being an open communist in the workplace become more open-minded about it, understanding that I wasn't just speaking of ideals in the abstract and that I had, a knowledge, uh, I had knowledge on the subject at hand. While I wasn't able to convince everyone to denounce liberalism and join the communist cause, which, let me remind you, was not the immediate goal, so that's fine. The immediate goal was to organize the workplace. I was able to convince, convince a bunch of them that action had to be taken and gained a number of people to discuss these ideas with and take action, which grew the ranks of the skeleton crew, or again, core of the organizing committee. With these people, we started talking to people and advocating to vote no unless the contract addressed our pay concerns and protected our benefits. The union leadership and shop stewards had told us to tone down our rhetoric, telling us that militancy in the unions was a dead idea. Boy, is that a union that needs to go if they tell you that. 
that we were the highest paid shop in the nation, which was only true because we are one of the few union print shops still left in the U.S., and that we should be grateful for what we have. Yeah. Uh, anyone in union leadership telling you that needs to go. That is not to be tolerated. We had enough people to vote down the contract and told the leadership to suck lemons. Management hadn't seen opposition like that in quite some time, according to some of the older people working at the shop, and they didn't have a plan to deal with it. So we ended up winning the highest pay increase in a decade among all positions. When before the first and second pressmen, oh, when before the first and second pressmen were the only ones getting raises. We also protected our benefits and got a provision to adequately staff presses put into the contract. So in other words, addressing the unsafe conditions by putting enough people on, on there to, to do the job, which forced the company to hire more general workers. The most important part of this, so fighting unemployment. The most important part of this was that we didn't lose anything. That's great. Over the course, because that's what they do. They try to whittle it away over time. Over the course of the next year, the one shop steward that actually stood up for us had quit his job. We had no one enforcing the contract at that point, and the union made it worse <clears throat> by making a stooge that rubber stamped all write-ups and allowed the company to break contract, understaff us again, and promote people outside of order of seniority, uh, a temporary shop steward until the upcoming election. I had decided it was time for me to run for shop steward. So here's your counter-revolution, essentially. Here's your uh, the one good shop steward quit, and then you got the uh, company lackey running the union who's just doing everything that the bosses want. There's your counter-revolution. Again, on the micro level, on the, on the uh, you know, one uh, employer, one workplace level. I began my campaign by having meetings in the back parking lot where I would agitate, sing labor songs for people, and just hang out and build bonds and community with each other. Many of the coworkers I had been talking to and meeting with vouched for me and gave me their support, but a lot of the older guys thought I had lacked the experience necessary to do the job. Well, that's interesting, considering it was your agitation that had actually led to the higher pay increases and all the other stuff, so seems unsupported by the evidence. I ultimately came up short and ended up losing the first run, leaving the worker with no shop steward that was willing to fight for their interests for at least a year. During that time, the year that waiting for the next election, I kept up the efforts to agitate among the workers, pointing out how the shop stewards were failing to represent them, the lack of leadership we had, and the need for a change in the union leadership. I also demonstrated how belligerent the bosses had been towards anyone who wasn't working 12 hours a day and giving up their weekends to the company. If you weren't doing this, the supervisors would publicly berate you and twist the arms of the first and second pressmen to do the same. So yeah, they try to get uh, everybody to be their enforcers. Don't be a fucking stooge. If you're a worker, don't be an enforcer for the boss. After looking over the contract, I found a provision that said we didn't have to work the overtime. So we could, uh, sorry, I found a provision that said we didn't have to work the overtime. We could sign off for eight hours and off the weekends any time. So, uh, so long as we worked a, quote, reasonable amount of overtime with no stipulation on what a reasonable amount of overtime actually was, how many hours that was. Going back to the union, trading off our lunch breaks for 30 hours of over, uh, sorry, 30 minutes of overtime during the normal work week, even more, uh, whoa, sorry, try that again. Going back to the union trading off our lunch breaks for 30 minutes of overtime, I argued to my coworkers that we are working at least two and a half hours of overtime during the normal work week, even more on the weekends. The group of workers I had been working with started signing for eight hours every day and off the weekends, and when the bosses and the pressmen started berating us, we laughed in their faces, saying, having time off for yourself and to spend with your family is nice, you should try it. Yeah, all the required overtime shit. I mean, yeah, you get the time and a half or you get whatever you get, but you're giving up your life. Quickly, other workers began to take note and started following our example. Because at this point, almost everyone was doing it. The union had no choice but to back us up. Every write-up ended up being tossed out, and if the bosses tried to harass us, the union started actually taking care of it. I know from experience the plant manager tried to blackmail me into working overtime by denying my vacation requests. You see how petty this gets. Like, this is, it can be an intense fight. Uh, 
by denying my re vacation requests, even though they were submitted well ahead of time, in other words, in accordance with company policy, he ended up getting in trouble for it, and I got a check for filing a grievance. Good for you. You were doing this correctly. The COVID-19 pandemic brought us new challenges. Workers were being laid off for weeks at a time, and the company was trying to tell us that we couldn't file for unemployment during this time, which wasn't true, but many of my coworkers didn't know it. I ended up calling several of my coworkers and lending them a hand in filing for unemployment. This is very good of you and exactly what you should do. And this is how the union can make itself relevant. It's not just about that. It's about helping each other in general life. Now, obviously, it's going to be more in relation to, um, you know, things closest to the workplace, such as filing for employment. But this is how, you know, unions can start mutual aid societies. And it's like, you know, um, you know, if somebody has to like move out of their apartment, they need help moving a couch, having your union step up and like help out for a few hours that's making yourself relevant to people's lives and it builds solidarity as do those social outings as well you know a bowling night whatever um, that's key you may not all be like the best of friends on every issue but if you can know that these people actually have your back and that you have a life beyond the workplace and they're willing to stand up for you the whole person that's really key and that's a union that people can believe in and will fight for. All right. They ended up receiving the unemployment uh, like I told them it would. This led to the company putting us back on the schedule as it cost them money. The company was also, re yeah, by the way, um, employers have to file usually, like uh, they get a particular rate for how much unemployment, uh, they, how, much, how much money they have to contribute to the unemployment fund. And it can depend on like their track record as an employer. So it can be cheaper for them to just like hire people back. The company was also refusing to protect us from COVID in the workplace. The union was saying that they couldn't do anything about it either. I organized a sick-in, a type of unsanctioned strike where as many workers as we could get called in all at once on various days of the week so that they couldn't plan for hiring temp workers. That is smart. So you're basically striking at random with these sick-ins. And, and so you're always catching the company off guard. That's good. We made our safety concerns known to the bosses and made sure that they understood that these call-ins had been directly related to it without outright saying it. I ended up getting written up for this, but no one had been fired and the safety concerns had been addressed within a couple weeks. The company had now been enforcing and providing masks in the workplace, doing temperature checks and putting a general worker on cleanup duty where they would scrub every surface in the building with alcohol. As a result, no one in the workplace ended up getting COVID until the state itself decided to open up. Let me just applaud you for this because if we had a functioning solid labor movement with people as committed as you, we would have a vastly different work landscape right now in the US. Good job. After uh, all this, the next contract negotiation was on the horizon. I ran for the committee, but again lost, which raised questions for me as the guys who won were all company guys who were not very well liked within the shop. Like, did they throw the election? Like, what happened? Of all the guys who ran for co uh, committee positions, these guys were not the ones who had any kind of popular support at all, leading me to believe that the union was rigging these elections, but I had zero proof at that point. Just the word of my coworkers who had told me and my crew of activists who they were going to vote for and why. The president of the union had already shown which side he was on in the last contract negotiations, and I knew without a real coalition, not just a skeleton crew, we would be in trouble. You can also call that minority unionism or, again, an organizing committee, the beginning of a bigger union, although that tends to be in workplaces where a union hasn't yet been formed, the organizing committee. The first thing I did was to continue my meetings after work, inviting as many of my coworkers to join as I could. The largest group of workers in our shop is the general workers, followed by the lead packers and feeders, and so I focused heavily on organizing among them. The first and second pressmen generally had no interest in working with us. I created a Facebook group in order to keep in contact, discuss things with each other, agitate, and take action. Now, I'm hoping that was a private group um, and even having it in that kind of writing can be risky if you have a mole in the group. Um, but yeah, you want to keep, obviously, your strategizing secret. It is illegal. It's an unfair labor practice 
for employers to spy on the union, but that doesn't mean that they don't do it, just that they have to pay a fine for it afterwards or whatever, make some other restitution. All right, continuing. Through this, we had the makings of a real coalition built on the largest blocks of workers in the shop, and we voted on what actions we should take and discussed what we wanted from this next contract. The first contract they offered us was abysmal, offering us a mere 15 cent raise across the board, which is actually a pay cut when inflation was taken into account. They also wanted to take away our seniority rights and be able to move up who they wanted when they wanted, which would have had the effect of turning workers against each other in terms of competing for a position and giving bosses the ability to stifle anyone who spoke too loudly against them by removing, uh, refusing to move them up at all. That's bad, it, but it continues. They wanted to dissolve the pension completely, put a management rights clause that ultimately would have busted the union and made our contract useless. So by the way, just look up management rights clauses. Uh, many things put these in there where it's like, management ultimately reserves the right to do fucking anything. Continuing, make us pay more for our health care and delegate what constitutes unsafe activity to an agreement between union officials who had already shown that they don't care about the workers and management themselves. Where the way it was, was that if you don't deem something to be safe, then no one can force you to do it. They also wanted to stuff a whole bunch of temps into the workplace and phase out the permanent general worker position, which would have cost the largest portion of workers there to lose their job to what is essentially scabs, yeah. Uh, scabs, workers hired to break a strike or to break a union, and particularly temporary workers. This is a part where um, labor law comes into effect because my understanding is in a lot of the European countries, for example, and probably just many countries that are not the U.S., there are limits on employers' ability in the event of industrial action, like a strike or some dispute, some labor dispute, there are limits on the employer's ability legally to hire temporary workers to replace them. Like if the employer has something super urgent, they can hire some temporary workers for a certain amount of time just to complete the project because it could endanger the business. But, but again, there are limits. In the U.S., you can essentially hire permanent, quote, temporary replacement workers, very, very few, if any, limits on that. So that's an area where if we had a decent labor movement, you would even under capitalism get those laws struck from the books. A lot of this goes back to the Taft-Hartley Act of the years immediately following World War II, the late 1940s. Uh, Taft-Hartley gutted labor unions' ability to effectively do almost anything. Have a closed shop. Um, it made many types of labor actions illegal, like the most effective ones. Even uh, Truman, Harry Truman, vetoed it, calling it a slave labor bill. But then the Congress overrode the veto. That's how critical the Taft-Hartley Act was to the capitalist class, which runs the U.S. government. Anyway, um, where were we? The union president constantly told us that this is the best that they could do, and they heavily backed this proposal. Man, what a stooge that union president was. They made our job as organizers easy by putting this terrible contract proposal on the table, and we voted it down immediately. This angered the union president and the contract committee, and they ended up giving us the same proposal numerous times. The only difference being the raise would have been 30 cents rather than 15, which is still a pay cut, counting for inflation. We kept voting no and ended up going half a year without a contract agreement. During this time, the union president threatened us by saying that if we keep voting no, they could just easily close the shop. That's, I believe, an unfair labor practice to do. I mean, that's basically a threat coming from the employer at that point. That's an unfair labor practice. I would I, I honestly possibly file on that. Or they could decide to approve the contract proposal anyways. Yeah, and then they risk uh, being decertified by you, which we still have a page of this. I'm wondering if decertification came up. So decertification is when workers become sufficiently unhappy with the existing union and they have an election to declare that the union does not represent them and that dissolves the union. That also paves the way for certifying a different union instead, which could you know, be a red union and not a yellow one. All right, continuing. Uh, during the meetings, I had gotten into direct shouting matches with the union president, 
arguing that what he was doing was a slap in the face to the workers who had built this company, who do the labor, and reminded him that without us, there is no company. We ended up voting no after all the threats, and in the end, the company ultimately gave in to us and took most of the amendments they wanted out. See, so in the end, you do have a lot of power workers. Stand up for yourselves, and eventually you can get what you want. At least some of the time. In this case, it did work, and that's often the case. We ended up getting the management, because we, there's no profits without you. There's no operations without you. Your labor is what multiplies the capital. This is how it works. If you withhold your labor, then you know capital stops multiplying and everything grinds to a halt. That is the power. In a society based on the exchange of commodities, which is capitalist society, based on the exchange of commodities, when a class of people have no commodity to exchange but their labor or labor time, then that's also your main weapon. It's the only thing that you can withhold. And withhold it you must, but in organized ways that can be tied to your political demands. We ended up getting the management rights clause taken out, reinforced our seniority, got a 50 cent raise, which still wasn't enough, but much better than what they were offering. We protected the pension so that older workers would be able to retire in peace, kept the safety rules how they were, and had amended it to say that temps could only make boxes and pile boxes onto pallets. And if they didn't have the temps to do it, a general worker could do it for only three hours maximum. And after that, the pressman could decide to shut down the press. Very good, because you see, a lot of these demands are about power and not just, you know, more money or, or whatever, although that, that can be important. But they're being smart and they're realizing that building this union means keeping those workers centered in the production process, getting as much power in their hands as possible, not allowing themselves to be replaced by temp workers, which would weaken the position of those workers in the, the permanent workers in the production process and ultimately pave the way for you know a scab regime of temp workers ununionized temp workers to basically take over so that was very um strategically intelligent there after we had successfully defeated the union busting proposal that they wanted to shove down our throats i had many of the workers including the older ones coming up to me thanking me and the coalition i had helped to build in the work that we did and for being so vocal and that i had their support so it took them long enough to come around, but I'm glad that they did ultimately see that you were really fighting for them. My next goal was to get a shop steward in that actually represented the worker as elections were coming up again. I decided to run again as many of my coworkers had told me that it was a uh, time for a change in the leadership. And after seeing how the union leadership acted during the last contract negotiation, who could possibly blame them? Clearly that union was not working for them undeniably. I ended up winning the election. Story has a fairly happy ending so far. I ended up winning the election, and the former shop steward handed me the paperwork to sign and to turn in the union hall, uh, turn into the union hall, saying I had the job. Congratulations. The next day, I went to turn in the paperwork, and the union president was covering the woman at the desk. I handed him the paperwork, to which he turned ghost white and accepted it. However, the next week, the union had announced a whole new election. Wow, is that cheap? That is so low and obvious. Wow. Never underestimate these fucking scumbags is the lesson there. Uh, this angered a lot of people at the shop. Yeah, bet. I had many of my co-workers come up to me saying that they were going to vote for me. And even the guys that didn't agree with me said that they were going to vote for me out of principle because they saw it as unfair. I mean, yeah, better late than never there. They're coming around. It had become blatantly obvious that they were attempting to rig it against me. You know, and again, I, I wish the U.S. worker generally would uh, not be such a difficult learner in these cases because this is where this was heading the whole time. The election passed, and as expected, they rigged it against me. And one of the supervisor's nephews was put in the position. The bosses immediately started watching me like a hawk, writing me up for little things, and threatening my job at the shop. My response was to become essentially the perfect worker, double-checking all my work and never calling in. 
So for that period of time, they had you walking on a tightrope because clearly they were gunning for you. Meanwhile, in secret, I utilized and communicated with the coalition that had been formed earlier to continue to act in the workplace despite my not being able to be as visibly present. So in other words, uh, this guy could not be as open with the organizing because they were clearly itching for any reason, rigging elections, holding new elections for no reason, just to get him out of power and to keep him out of power. They ended up getting the safety commission revamped with monthly safety meetings and better equipment. So that's great because now your union effort and your organized class conscious workers who were aware of the score in your workplace weren't just revolving around you. They were able to pick up the torch because if it's just one person, you can be fired. But if everybody is willing to step up into that role, that's really good. Despite my losing the shop steward election, I had won something else that was much more valuable to me than the union position. I gained the trust of my coworkers to be able to stand up for them, and I did it as an open communist, proving that it is possible to win the minds of the masses and have them stand with you. And might I add, it takes communists to do these things. The liberals do not have the courage to do it. Many of them come to me to answer union-related questions, and oftentimes I'm requested to represent them in the face of the actual shop steward. They trust me to stand up for their interests, and not only me, but in the coalition of workers that we had formed together to stand up for our own interests better than the union could as it stands, solidifying it as an organ of dual power within the workplace. It took me five years of constant building, talking with my coworkers, acting in the workers' interests in the face of an uphill battle to accomplish what was done there, and there's still a lot of work to be done. It's tough work. I mean, I think most people, like, unfortunately don't have the stomach for this, but you got to do it. Otherwise, conditions will just keep getting worse. You look at what's been happening with the gutting of the labor movement, which um, peaked in about 1960, and um, let me repeat that as there was some background noise. You look at what happened with the labor movement as a whole, which peaked in about 1960 and has been on the de decline ever since. Um, things have just gotten worse and worse and worse in the U.S. workforce generally. And that's the case within specific workplaces. And it's the case, you know, as far as industry standards for working conditions. So you got to hold the line or, or else this this kind of thing happens. Anyway, uh, but ultimately it was a rewarding experience, and if I had it to do all again, I would do it in a heartbeat. I have trust in my fellow workers here that even if I was fired, the, uh, even you know, even if I was fired, they would have a tool to actually fight back, and they could continue on that fight. And I know that they would use it. Let this be something that can both inspire you to organize in the labor movement in the face of adversity, and show that it is indeed possible to fight back and win as a worker. So hats off. That is a pretty good story. A lot of um, union organizing stories end, you know, with much less satisfactory results. You're clearly in a difficult spot, but you have had victories and there are prospects for additional future victories. In other words, they've got you kind of squeezed right now, but you can fight your way back out of it. As far as my follow up question, I would say, you know, have you considered trying to decertify this union and get a not crooked union in there, um, you know, that, that that would be one of the things I would uh, ask you to consider as far as your future solutions. I'm not saying that is definitely the solution for you, but it's something that comes to mind because these people are objectively standing in the way of you launching class struggle within your workplace. All right, so thank you to Doug Jaffray for that story. I think reading that kind of story, you know, this can clue people in and I want to say inspire people to do the same. To be honest, I think when you see how daunting it is, a lot of people probably get, you know, uh, kind of a lump in their throat. But the reality is this is what it's going to take to fight back workplace by workplace, industry by industry, and from there... It can become political because what we've seen, you know, back when there was a strong labor movement, it was opportunistic for the labor leaders to work within the Democratic Party. That was selling out to the boss on the nationwide level, if you will, 
within the political arena, specifically, you know, the governmental arena. But, you know, if you look at communists like um, Debs, Eugene Debs was a labor leader for a long time before he co-founded the IWW and then became Socialist Party presidential candidate and then a self-declared American Bolshevik. Uh, if you look at other people like... Um, Oh, why is the name escaping me? Organizing Methods in the Steel Industry. Anyway, other prominent communists in, in U.S. history, these are people that came out of labor struggles. It's not just people who, like, read a book and decided, like, I am the voice of the working class. It's people who have experience in the struggle, whether it's a tenants' union fight, whether it's a labor union fight, whatever it is, it's people who know the ins and outs of class struggle that have been through it and have demonstrated actual leadership capabilities. They have the leadership experience as qualifications and, and they've shown that. It's not just, you know, debate me, bro. It's like, have you done something in the real world that, you know, advanced the interests of the working class? Have you held your own cleverly, skillfully, guilefully against the employer who's trying to get rid of you when you're you know helping to organize the workers and raise class consciousness within your workplace have you done those things are you good at them what i was going to say before is it was opportunistic of labor leaders to work within the democratic party at all but even those people had that experience like they'd been through organizing campaigns they'd been through contract struggles they had done the fight and they knew what was up. They knew how to get things done and how to lose. And they did uh, the things that win and avoided the things that lose. They knew how you could win a fight and how you could lose it, in other words. And we need people with this kind of experience and consciousness to become the next generation of radical labor leaders. Without that, you don't have a vanguard. This is where the vanguard comes from. People who demonstrate that kind of high degree of class consciousness, scholarship, and leadership. And, you know, labor leaders don't come out of thin air, in other words. Uh, it, it takes being involved in the struggle for that. Now, you can be a supporter without doing any of that, and that's fine, because leaders need supporters. You know, it's not, this isn't the anarchist view where everyone has to be a leader. Not everyone is a leader, and that's completely okay. Leaders need supporters and followers who are going to stand by them. And that's crucial, too. If you're more of a follower than a leader, but you're following the right thing for the right reasons, that's completely fine. Don't be ashamed of that. The point is we all stick together and fight for our class and know who the enemy is. And clearly Doug uh, is an example of doing that. All right, let's get back into the chat.